Hi everybody, Carla here, and welcome back to another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, I welcome your questions, your comments, and your suggestions at CarlaReadsTheClassics at gmail.com. I also invite you to let me know what's on your mind by replying to the episode question with whatever you'd like to say. If you enjoy the content here at Carla Reads the Classics, please consider a small contribution to support the podcast. And now, without further delay, Tuck in as I give you H.K. Fitzgerald's Raising Catherine, Chapter 10. When we got to Chicago, there were about six inches of snow on the ground, and it was far colder than I thought it would be. It gave a whole new meaning to the name Windy City. Chicago was different than what Catherine and I were used to. I hadn't lived in an inner city in years, and Catherine had never lived in an inner city. I knew there would be some adjusting and getting acclimated. My first order of business was finding a school for Catherine. I'd been told the public schools were very dangerous because of the gangs. My uncle suggested a private school he knew of that was a lot cheaper than the university lab school that he'd wanted her to attend. This school was called the Genesis Christian Academy. From what I saw on the surface, it was a good school. The state standardized test score was way above average. The building was clean, and everyone we met seemed very nice. After meeting with the principal, Mrs. Ritchie, I decided to enroll Catherine. After all, I didn't like the other choices we had. The Genesis Christian Academy cost $600 a month, which was less than what I was previously paying for her school back in Maryland. At that time, though, $600 a month was a lot of money for us. We were living on Catherine's Social Security Survivor's Benefits and $800 a month from the D.C. Retirement Board, and it didn't leave us much, and it didn't leave us enough money to live on. I couldn't afford an apartment, let alone food, so we lived with Uncle Philip until I could find work. What alternative was there? To put her in the neighborhood public school that was gang infested was the last thing I wanted for my child. I didn't want her I didn't want her to become a victim of the violence that was going on in that school. The children learned very little. Their test scores were very low and it seemed like a chaotic environment. I didn't want Catherine to be a part of any of that. My next task was to find a job. Like the rest of the country, my construction job market was slow. In Chicago, everything is based on who you know. I soon began to find out nepotism and cronyism influenced everything, better known as the Chicago way. There was so much going on through the back door of the government that it was almost impossible to get an interview. It was even harder for me because it had been such a long time since I'd looked for a job. What made it even more difficult, I didn't know anybody with connections. It felt like Chicago businesses didn't trust people they didn't already know. It was a whole new world for Catherine and me. We didn't know anyone and didn't have any friends. I felt like I was on an exiled or a deserted island and there was only God and me. Catherine seemed to be adapting to school, but there was something going on. She never said anything and I didn't know what it was, but I worried she would begin to withdraw. So I started to spend time with her at at her new school so I could get to know the staff and, and parents. Spending time at the school also allowed me to keep an eye on Catherine. I didn't have a car, but my uncle let me use his to get Catherine to and from school and so I could volunteer. Volunteering was also a way to meet people and to try to become a part of the school community. 
As I began to get to know her teachers and the administrative staff, I, I started to like the school. We were invited to attend the church that was located in the same building as Catherine's school. I asked Uncle Philip what he knew about the church. He said he'd never really attended, but thought we should check it out. So Catherine and I went to the service. The service was okay, but Catherine said she didn't care for it. I thought, how does a child know how good or bad a church is? But it said, out of the mouths of babes, and children sometimes sense things adults don't. We didn't go back to church there, but we continued to become friends with the congregation. After all, I figured we were living in a new city with no friends, and I should find a church where Catherine was comfortable. As we continued finding our way through the city and the school, we met Mother Elaine. Mother Elaine was the church mother of the Genesis Baptist Church. She was one of the nicest people we'd ever met. She was 82 years old, but she looked like she was in her 50s. She still drove and walked better than people 30 years younger than she was. She adopted Catherine as her grandchild. Catherine was very comfortable with her. I was happy about that because Catherine began to relax. Mother Elaine reminded me of my mother. She even looked like my mother. When we met her, I knew God was still at work in our lives. I laughed and said to God, You sent my mother to keep an eye on us. Thank you, God. As time passed, Catherine flourished academically. According to her test score, she was in the 90th percentile of second graders. However, socially, there was something wrong. I didn't know what was going on, and she never talked about making new friends like she used to at her other schools. In fact, it seemed like she wasn't making any friends. Eventually, she started to talk about what was happening. She said the other little girls in her class didn't talk to her. I asked her why, and she said she didn't know, but she said whenever she tried to talk to them, they just walked away. I asked, do they say anything? Catherine replied, sometimes they say they don't like me. I asked if she told the teacher. She said no. I told her I would. The next day, I talked with the teacher, Mrs. Holmes, about what Catherine told me. She said she hadn't noticed any negative behavior from the other girls, but she would look into it. Mrs. Holmes told me the next day that the other girls say they had no problems with Catherine. She indicated she thought it was just because they hadn't, they hadn't gotten to know each other. She told me to give it some time. She was sure things would change. At that point, I didn't think any more about it. I trusted what her teacher said, and even though I felt it was more than the girls not having a chance to get to know each other, I thought she might be being bullied. But I didn't want to believe that about a Christian girls, about Christian girls at a Christian school. Near the end of the school year, the counselor, Dr. Bell, contacted me and said they wanted to talk about Catherine's behavior. I asked what was wrong with her behavior. Dr. Bell wouldn't tell me over the phone. She asked me to come to the school so we could talk. The next morning, I went to the school and met her. Dr. Bell suggested I have Catherine tested because she thought she might have ADHD. I was disturbed and asked her why she thought that. She explained the professional definition of ADHD to me and said Catherine had all the signs. We began to get into a heated discussion about it. Dr. Bell revealed Catherine was very antisocial and she didn't talk to her classmates. I asked Dr. Bell, have you ever considered she may be being bullied or she just may be shy because she doesn't have a mother? 
Since she learned how to talk, Catherine has always wanted a mother. Maybe she feels like she doesn't fit in with these other children. There could be a lot of factors that would explain her behavior. Have you considered those options? You don't have a clue what you're talking about. Catherine doesn't have ADHD. It's something else. Dr. Bell replied, I can have Catherine tested with or without your permission. You go ahead and try. I do know lawyers, I implied. Later that week, I saw the principal and she wanted to talk about the report Dr. Bell had written. What about the report? I asked. There was nothing wrong with having her tested, Mrs. Ritchie told me. It's a way to rule out ADHD. And a test can be fixed to read what you wanted to read, I suggested. Is this school Title I eligible? I asked. Yes, she replied. I said, under the provisions of Title I, the school is paid government funds to assist children with educational, with educational and emotional problems. Mrs. Ritchie said, that's correct. Then how do I know the school isn't just trying to use my child to get money? I asked. Mrs. Ritchie said, we want to see if she is IEP or a 504 eligible child. We, we want to help her. I raised my voice. What? Excuse me? Mrs. Ritchie, my child does not have a disability. Unlike a lot of parents, I know what IEPs and 504s are. These plans were created for children with serious disabilities and Catherine doesn't have any. I know what kind of negative effect it can have on her in the future. I have never heard this from any of her teachers before now. So what, am I supposed to go with what anybody says? Mrs. Ritchie responded, Mrs. Bell is a professional, and she knows what she's talking about. I replied, if I listened to everything everyone was telling me, then I would have given my child away when her mother died. Please, Mrs. Ritchie, I hope this is the end of the ADHD and IEP stuff. If the school or Dr. Bell tries to force me to have Catherine tested, I will have her license. I left the school and went to the park and started thinking. I just wanted God to tell me what I'd done wrong so I could fix it so all the trials and tribulations could go away. But I heard nothing. I thought I would be forced to move Catherine to another school. But we had just moved to Chicago and I knew, and I knew moving her again wouldn't be good for her. One thing I'd learned, when children have a stable environment, they thrive and they're successful. About a week later, I talked with Mother Elaine about what Mrs. Ritchie and Dr. Bell said to me about Catherine. I was hesitant to talk to her about the situation because I didn't know if I could trust her, but I knew I needed to trust someone. She told me she'd found out some of the little girls in the school had been saying mean things to Catherine and she would cry sometimes, but Catherine's teacher was ignoring these incidents. I said, no one has said anything to me about this. What, what kinds of things are they saying? She replied, they say things like, you can't come to our birthday parties because you stink. Mother Elaine said they also said Catherine said that Catherine's hair was nappy and they tease her about not having a mother and they would laugh at her because she's tall. At that point, I was pissed, but I was more brokenhearted than anything else. I said to Mother Elaine, Christian children saying nasty things like that is beyond me. She said, calm down and think about what you're going to say. She then suggested if I needed her to be there with me when I confronted the school about what she told me, she'd be there. When Mother Elaine said that, I said to myself, she must be my mother reincarnated because most people wouldn't risk their reputation on someone they don't know very well. She said, there's nothing wrong with Catherine. Don't worry. 
Does the school have money problems? I asked. Yes, she replied. But I don't know how bad. I do know there were parents who couldn't pay the tuition because a lot of them lost their jobs. I believe they're trying to classify Catherine as a mentally disabled child in order to get money from the government. Do you understand what I'm talking about? I don't, she said, but people might do anything for money. The next day I met with Dr. Bell, Mrs. Ritchie, Catherine, and Mother Elaine. Mrs. Ritchie asked why Mother Elaine was there. I explained she'd come to me and verified Catherine was being bullied. During our discussion, Dr. Bell insisted Catherine was ADHD and needed an IEP. She needs to be tested and classified as such. At that point, I became angry, but I stayed calm, as Mother Elaine had instructed me to do. I addressed them calmly. I know the government provides money for children classified as mentally disabled. I think it's about $10,000 per year. That's correct, Mrs. Ritchie said, but this isn't about money. I stayed calm and told her we needed to go to the classroom and ask the teacher and children in front of all the students what's been going on. Mrs. Ritchie said she didn't believe that Catherine said she didn't believe what Catherine said. But when we got to the class and inquired about the alleged incidents, you could see the expression on the students' faces. They knew someone was in trouble. When they saw Catherine and the principal with Mother Elaine, they began to talk before we could say anything. One young man fell. One young man, one young man began to tell everything he knew about the way they were treating Catherine. Inside, I was laughing because I had just proven my point to Dr. Bell that she needed to look into whatever she needed to look into whether or not Catherine was being bullied. Shortly thereafter, the class stood up and apologized to Catherine and asked her if she wanted to come to one of their birthday parties. Even though I had proven my point. Dr. Bell didn't want to give up. She thought I would give in, but I didn't, and I wasn't going to. I know some people tend to listen to what professionals say without a second opinion, but not me. If Catherine was identified as an IEP or a 504, I knew teachers, students, and others would have access to this information and would judge her for it. Maybe not intentionally, but they would. I informed Dr. Bell I would reconsider the test after we saw how Catherine's behavior would now be that we knew that she was being bullied. I only suggested this to Dr. Bell so I could get her to leave me alone. I had my reasons why I didn't want Catherine tested. The greatest one was I didn't want those doctors telling me my child was disabled and needed medication or worse. I also still had a high level of paranoia because of the mess I went through with my in-laws trying to take Catherine from me after Vanessa died. I always thought they would use anything against me to try to take Catherine. Also, I knew sometimes children just need to burn energy. For some reason, the world has come to believe children are supposed to sit still and do everything we as parents and teachers say. This is not true, though. Children are naturally curious and have very high levels of energy, and they need to burn it. With all the crime and violence that has started to started to rise, we we don't send our children outside to play or into the parks like we used to, and for good reason. So many people are injured by stray gunfire. We we protect our children by keeping them in the house, but at the same time, we're hurting them. The problem is keeping them inside only prevents them from burning their excess energy, which can lead to all sorts of problems, including making some children obese. 
They, the, the really bad part is that doctors are quick to prescribe drugs or label every child with lots of energy. The platform with these, the problem with these medications is children's bodies and minds become dependent on them. With all that in mind, I knew it was best to delay testing for Catherine. School was going to be over in a couple of weeks, and then I wouldn't have to worry about Dr. Bell for almost three months. Don't get me wrong, some children are in need of special services and should be given the services they need. But testing and labeling a child as special just because they isolate and have lots of energy is wrong. There could be a number of problems a child could have. Maybe in the home there's something going on. And in Catherine's case, she was bullied. In my opinion, all-out testing, instant diagnoses, and prescribing drugs needs to stop. Our children deserve better. Chapter 11 During that summer, one of the girls who'd bullied Catherine asked her to join the local Girl Scout troop. Catherine wasn't interested, but I told her she had to. I thought it would be good for her to get out of the house, burn energy, get to know other children, and have fun. When I expressed to Catherine she had to join, I didn't realize I was going to become a father volunteer for the Girl Scouts. That wasn't something I wanted to do, but Catherine didn't have anyone else. Most of the other Girl Scouts had their mothers or aunts, and Catherine didn't want to be left alone, so I needed to be there for her. When I would tell the women at the Girl Scout meetings that Catherine's mother had died and I was raising her by myself, they, they couldn't believe it. Everyone said things like, she's such a lady or she's such a girly girl. They told me Catherine had good manners, was kind, and had an infectious laugh. Many people have a misconception that children, especially girls, should be raised by a woman, but that, that isn't true. I always said, I'll do whatever it takes to take care of and provide for my child. Most people who heard our story were proud of me. Mother Elaine used to say, I had a lot of guts to stand up and do the right thing. Soon, several husbands of the troop mother started to get a little upset with me. Some even accused me of trying to steal their wives. Some said I was making them look bad. That part might have been true. The women, though, kept telling their husbands about what an attentive father I was. They wanted their husbands to ask me for advice on how to be better fathers. Before long, the husbands started coming to the Girl Scout meetings and they began helping sell Girl Scout cookies. It started to become a competition to see who could sell the most cookies. I was proud when Catherine sold over 100 boxes of cookies. She had the most sales of any of the girls in the troop. Of course, all the women asked how I was out selling them. They wanted their husbands to sell like me. My advantage was, was Uncle Philip. He attended a mega church. His church friends and other members of his church wanted to help Catherine, and buying Girl Scout cookies from her was one way they could. Selling all those cookies helped build Catherine's confidence. Because Catherine sold the most cookies, she earned a couple of awards, including a leadership patch for her uniform. I thought that would help her be accepted by the other girls. Most of them were in her class, and some of them had been mean to her. I was wrong. It only seemed to make the situation worse. The girls' jealousy just intensified. Their behavior was confusing. First, they acted like they wanted to be a part of they wanted her to be a part of their group of friends. Then suddenly they were mad at her because she sold more cookies and won the leadership patch. I finally figured out what was going on with some of those girls. 
titles and awards meant the world to them, and the leadership award was very prestigious. It carried bragging rights. Catherine didn't let them bother her. She continued to progress and be successful. She was still teased about her height, her hair, and anything else they could think of, but Catherine seemed to ignore most of the harassment and bullying. The more time I spent around these kids, the more I understood why Catherine didn't want to be a part of their group. She wasn't like them. She liked to help people. She always wanted to do things like give food or money to the homeless. And every time we went into a McDonald's, she always wanted to put a quarter in the box on the counter. She used to ask me, Daddy, when we get rich or if we win the lottery, can we help the poor and homeless people? I always told her yes. That was one of the things Vanessa and I wanted to do. As Catherine started to mature, I began to see more and more of her mother's spirit and personality in her. Mother Elaine and Catherine grew very close. She started doing Catherine's hair and buying her clothes. I told Mother Elaine it wasn't necessary for her to buy Catherine clothes, but I was grateful she was doing Catherine's hair. I explained to her that Catherine wanted to go to a hairstylist, but I didn't know anyone to send her to in Chicago, and I couldn't afford much. Mother Elaine introduced me to one of the parents, Miss Diane, who owned a hair salon. Miss Diane had heard about Catherine and me, and she wanted to meet us. She told me she'd be happy to do Catherine's hair at a discounted price. I was very grateful because I didn't want Catherine to be bullied or teased about her hair that coming school year. I knew it was going to be a trying year for us because she had grown three inches over the summer. She was now the tallest child in her class. She was even taller than the boys that made her feel insecure. Dealing with Catherine's insecurities about how she looked was very difficult because I didn't know how she really felt. I told her God wanted her to be tall and beautiful and that made Catherine smile. Something good did come from Catherine's growth spurt though. Just before school began, she was asked to join the girls' basketball team. She had never played sports, but she wanted to try. She wasn't that good when she started, but because she was tall, she would get a lot of the rebounds. I hoped being on the team would be good for her social life and boost her self-esteem. Catherine needed that, especially after the bullying she'd suffered from the other girls. Things seemed to be settling down. Catherine wasn't quite as she had been when she first started at the school. She was beginning to get used to the school and our new environment. She was starting the third grade and having fun trying to play basketball. Some of the girls started to talk to her and she was making friends. I was hopeful Catherine wouldn't experience any more bullying. I was concerned because to me, bullying is a symptom of low self-esteem and I wondered what Catherine's classmates were going through at home. Were their parents giving them enough attention? Parents can help prevent bullying by spending quality time with their children. If they don't have our attention, they'll seek attention elsewhere, and sometimes they'll lash out at other children. Building a relationship and trying to understand what's going on in our child's lives lets our children know we care about what they're going through. I called Miss Diane, the hairstylist, so Catherine could feel pretty on her first day. I took her to the shop and sat there and watched her. She was really enjoying herself. It was the first time she'd had her hair done professionally. She was in heaven. 
the, the women in the shop said I was a good father because I sat there with her. Sitting there with her didn't mean anything to me because I could tell Catherine liked me being there. Besides, this was Catherine's first time getting her hair done at the shop, and I wasn't comfortable leaving her with people I didn't know. I was told most men would drop their daughters off and come back when they were finished. I guess the women were impressed. I told Miss Diane about the bullying Catherine had experienced, and she told me about the children who had done most of the bullying. Diane knew most of the parents and the children. Her children had gone to, to school there since kindergarten. She told me if I talked with the parents, the bullying would stop. I told her I would do just that. I decided to wait a couple weeks to see if Catherine would have any problems before I would confront the parents. To my surprise, a couple of the parents came to me first. They let me know Catherine wouldn't have any more problems, and if she did, they would take care of them. I was a little surprised, but I just thanked them. Shortly after that happened, I received a call inviting me to come to the PTA meeting that Wednesday. I agreed. At first, I felt a little uncomfortable, but I wanted to know how things worked at school and who influenced the decisions. When Catherine and I got to the PTA meeting, I was asked to join the Fathers Club. The PTA members thought I would be a good example of what a father was. I was told being asked to join the PTA was their way of welcoming Catherine and me and trying to make us feel at home. I knew they'd heard about Catherine being bullied last year. Before long, I knew most of the teachers and administrators. Most of them were very friendly, but there were a few who thought I shouldn't be raising Catherine by myself. They were old-school-thinking women who felt a man had no business raising children, especially a girl. After the PTA meeting and the insults from the older women, I was confused and didn't know what to think. Later that week, I, I ran into Dr. Bell, the school therapist, who had wanted to have Catherine classified as special needs. She asked, have you reconsidered having Catherine tested? I have. And no, you can forget about that. It's not going to happen. Dr. Bell implied, okay, I'll leave you alone. But if you need me, let me know. Okay, I will. As I was walking away, she asked, what are you going to do when Catherine gets her menstrual cycle? I'm not sure. I haven't thought about it yet. She replied, it's coming and you need to start thinking about it. I, being paranoid, and thought she was using that as a way to get me to have Catherine tested, but the truth was her cycle was coming and I really had no clue what to do. The school year went by really fast and the summer arrived before we knew it. I didn't know what we were going to do for the summer. Catherine said she didn't want to do the Girl Scouts anymore, so I asked her what she wanted to do. She wanted to play basketball. I was concerned about that. With Chicago being rough in some areas, I was worried we could end up in the wrong playground or she or I could get hurt. One day, we were driving past the WMCA, and it came to me that was the answer. Catherine and I went in to talk about the cost, and we were told it was $42 a month. The price was right, and the location was close to the house, so we joined. They had a youth co-ed basketball league that I thought fit Catherine well, but shortly after she started going, she said she didn't want to go anymore. I didn't know why she wanted to quit, but I figured I'd wait until we were having dinner to ask her. That evening, without me asking, she informed me the children were bad. She said they said bad words and talked about fighting and guns. I asked her if she told the counselor, and she said no. Why? I asked her. 
I don't know, she said. If you don't want to go back, you don't have to, I assured her. We can find something else for you to do. One thing I've learned is that when you force people, especially children, to do things they don't like, you can destroy their happiness and their self-esteem and they become rebellious. Finding something for Catherine to do that summer was harder than I thought it was going to be. We didn't know many people, money was short, and our family was on the East Coast, so our options were limited. I became depressed. I didn't know what I was going to do, so I took Catherine to the park near the school. When we got there, some of her classmates were playing on the swings and slides. There were other children from the school there and a couple of teachers. I asked them what they were doing there. Miss Campbell, one of Catherine's teachers, told me the school had a summer program. I knew nothing about this program, so Miss Campbell suggested I go to the school and ask them about it. I asked, how much is it? She said she thought it was $50 a week for existing students. We went around the corner to the school and got her registered. Catherine was excited. She started to make friends with these children last year, so spending the summer with them in day camp would be good for her and me. The amazing thing was, if I ne- the, the amazing thing was, if I'd never gotten depressed, I would have never have taken Catherine to the park, and we may have never found out about the summer program at the school. It said all things work together for good. I guess they do. After that, things seemed to continue to get better. I finally got a job interview. I was hoping for the best. My interview was on a Monday. I was nervous and didn't know what to expect. I hadn't interviewed for a job in the last eight years, and I knew the construction job market was still unstable. But I also knew God hadn't let us down yet. After a sleepless weekend, Monday finally came. The day seemed like it took forever. I dropped Catherine off at the summer camp and went to my interview. The closer I got to the offices, the more nervous I became. It was a good thing I got there early so I could sit in the car for a few minutes to calm down. I really needed this job, so I couldn't afford to be nervous and mess up the interview. I knew I had to make the best of this just in case I didn't get any other opportunities. The job market was still crashing and interviews were hard to get. Once the interview started, my nerves calmed down and the interview went well. The manager took me to meet people I would be working with and showed me drawings of the project I would be working on. My confidence began to grow and I felt good about the process. The senior project manager asked me, if we offered you this job, would you take it? Are you offering me this job? I asked. He said, I need to know that if we offer you this job that you can start working right away. How long will it be before you can make an offer? I asked. Within a week, he answered. Yes, I said, I will take the job if you offer it to me. After I left the interview, I went by the school and picked up Catherine from day camp. I told her we were going to get ice cream and of course she was happy about that. I always enjoyed time with Catherine because she always told me about her day. Most of the time, she'd tell me how much fun she'd had. She was really excited because school was starting in a few weeks. She would be going to the fourth grade and she couldn't wait for school to start. I loved moments like that when she and I could just sit together and talk. I felt like it really helped us develop a strong bond. 
In today's world, it's hard to carve out time for our children. It's no wonder so many parents feel like their children don't listen to them. They wonder why are their children getting in trouble? Rich, poor, and middle class, black families, white families, all families, everyone goes through the same things when it comes to raising children. Trouble doesn't discriminate. There's no exact science for solving the struggles of parenting, but letting our kids know how much we love them and how important they are helps them to make wiser choices. I decided early on that I wasn't going to be one of those fathers who in five or ten years wished I'd spent more time with my daughter. I believed, and I still do, that it's our job as parents, especially as fathers, to teach our children right from wrong. I really didn't have a choice because I was the only one Catherine had to teach her, but I wanted Catherine to have a good attitude about our relationship when she got older. In my opinion, one of the greatest things a child can have is a daddy bragging, right? Especially daughters. Don't get me wrong, mothers do it all, and children need their mothers just as much as their fathers. However, there's something special about a father having a close relationship with his children. For me, there's nothing like it. Chapter 12. Catherine was starting fourth grade and wouldn't be 10 years old until October. As always, she was younger and taller than her classmates, and she was growing at an alarming rate. She looked older than she was, probably because of her height. She was five feet two inches tall and growing. When school started, I received a call from the school office saying Catherine needed a physical and additional shots. I'd been so busy trying to get us settled and trying to find a job that I hadn't thought about getting those things done before the start of the school year. They advised me that I had to get her physical and shots completed within two weeks or I'd have to take her out of school until she had them. This was a huge problem because I didn't have a doctor for her and we didn't have insurance. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. The following Sunday at church, I was talking to the chairman of the deacons who had become a very good friend of ours. He had grandchildren Catherine's age who she played with on Sundays after services. I explained our problem to him. He told me the church secretary worked for the Department of Human Services and she could help get us insurance and SNAP. I told him I didn't want food stamps, even though I knew we really needed them. I allowed my pride to get in the way, feeling embarrassed and ashamed about the situation Catherine and I found ourselves in. I'd never had food stamps, and the last time I tried to apply after Catherine's mother died, I was denied. I also asked him which doctor he used for his grandchildren because I didn't know any of the pediatricians. Deacon Carl directed me to his wife, Sister Carl. She was one of those people who knows everything about everything and everybody. Anything you needed, she could take care of. Sister Carl suggested I take Catherine to Dr. Abigail, the same doctor she used for her grandchildren. I reminded her that I didn't have insurance. Sister Carl told me to take her to see Dr. Abigail anyway and let her know she referred me. Monday, after I dropped Catherine off at school, I went by Dr. Abigail's office and explained my insurance issue to her and that Sister Carl had referred me. Dr. Abigail was very nice and understanding of my issues. She had her nurse make an appointment for us. The nurse told me they had an insurance program for uninsured children called All Kids. She said all I had to do was fill out the paperwork and the bill would be covered. As I began to fill out the application, I noticed there was a question about whether or not the parent had insurance. 
I didn't quite understand, but I answered the question honestly. Of course, I didn't have insurance, but I, was, I wasn't concerned about me. I figured I would be okay. After I finished the application, I gave it back to the nurse, and she told me to have Catherine there on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. As I started to leave, I stopped and asked her if I would need any money. She replied, no, just be on time. It gets crowded. I was pleased by the way I was treated in Dr. Gab, in doc, Dr. Abigail's office. When I left, I called Sister Carl and told her how good they were to me. She told me, just wait until you take Catherine. You'll see why so many people love Dr. Abigail. Saturday came and it was time for Catherine's appointment. We got there around 7.30 a.m. That way we wouldn't be late. When we got there, seven people were already waiting in the lobby. My first thought was, we're going to be here all day. I signed Catherine in and took a seat. I was the only male parent there. This wasn't unusual for me. I hadn't paid any attention to it until one of the the women said something about it. Your wife must love you for getting up on Saturday morning and bringing your child to the doctor, she said. I smiled and said, thank you. I I do this all the time. About that time, another woman jokingly asked me if I could teach her boyfriend how to do things like that. I laughed and implied, sometimes you do what you have to do to make things work. They didn't know my situation and I didn't feel like explaining it to them. I was just kind of lost in my thoughts. I wondered, why don't more men take their children to the doctor? I didn't have an answer, but I knew I enjoyed being there for Catherine. For me, it was fun. As we sat waiting, more people started to come in. I said to myself, wow, Sister Carl was right. It is going to get crowded. Time seemed to be moving so slowly. Catherine started making friends with the other girls. Their mothers began talking with me and complimenting her hair. They asked me who did it. I told them she went to Miss Diane at the Infinity Hair Salon. Catherine always seemed to attract attention from everybody. People wanted to know why she was so happy. One lady said to me, her mother is doing a great job. Catherine is such a lady. Just as I began to explain to her that I was raising Catherine by myself, the nurse called our name. A part of me wanted to tell her our story, but I guess I wasn't supposed to. I only said, I'm sure she is. I said a silent prayer and thanked God for all he was doing to help us. When we got into the exam room, Catherine asked me if she was going to get shots. I said, yes, you already know you have to get them. If you don't get them, you can't go back to school. Are you going to cry? She frowned and replied, I'm going to try not to. It won't hurt, I told her. They know how to do it so it doesn't hurt. I didn't think telling her it wouldn't hurt did much to calm her fears, but it was all I could think of. When she'd gotten her first shot a few years before, she didn't understand what the doctor was doing, but now she was older and understood what was going on. This was new territory for both of us. Soon, Dr. Abigail came in and introduced herself herself to Catherine. I could see she was good with children, just as Sister Carl said she would be. She and Catherine hit it off right away. When she asked what kind of grades Catherine had, she replied, All A's. Dr. Abigail told her she was one of the few children she treated who had all A's. She told Catherine how proud she was of her. As we talked more, she she asked me to explain what happened to her mother. 
After telling her about Vanessa, Dr. Abigail said she was going to draw some blood and run some tests just to make sure Catherine didn't have any major health issues. Dr. Abigail started to talk about Catherine's coming menstrual cycle. She educated both of us on on what to do when it happened. I cringed and I started to think, why does she need to have a period? Am I really going to be able to handle or help her with that? I had so many thoughts running through my mind that I couldn't I couldn't focus on what she was telling Catherine and me. Dr. Abigail must have seen the look on my face because she laughed and said, you'll be fine. Everything will work out. You've done an excellent job so far. I know you'll be able to handle this too. I knew she was right. I also knew Catherine would be counting on me. Dr. Abigail told Catherine, make sure you let your father know when it happened so he can bring you into the office, okay? How soon will it be before she has a period, I asked. She replied, there's no way to determine exactly when, but nowadays it usually occurs between the ages of 10 and 15. I laughed and told the doctor she isn't going to have a period. Dr. Abigail smiled and said, well, that would be bad, but I know you're only joking. She was just like Sister Carl said she would be very nice and concerned. She asked me about my health. I gave her a brief rundown. Then she said I needed to have a physical. She explained that my health was just as important as Catherine's because I had to stay healthy so I could continue to take care of her. I totally understood I needed a physical, but I explained to Dr. Abigail that I wasn't going to be able to have one because I didn't have insurance. She advised me because I was caring for a child and unemployed, all kids insurance program would cover me as well. When you get Catherine's insurance card in the mail, there should be one for you too. I told her I had never been in a place before where I needed public assistance. I I was embarrassed to admit I needed help, but at the same time, I was grateful Catherine and I were able to get some assistance. The experience humbled me, and it gave me a new outlook about people who are struggling. What I learned from this experience was important so I could mature into the man and father I really needed to become. I learned to never judge people because of where they came from, what they have, or by the color of their skin. It gave me a new appreciation for the passage, Judge not, that you not be judged, for the way that we judge others, God will judge us. When Catherine and I left the doctor's office, we went to Boston Market, one of our favorite places to eat out. I wanted to take Catherine somewhere where she felt comfortable so we could talk about what she needed to do when her period started. Catherine implied that it was something she thought she should talk to a lady about. Okay, I'll have you talk to Mother Elaine, I said to her. I knew Catherine was comfortable with her, and I didn't know many other women I trusted to have that kind of conversation with her. On Monday, when I took Catherine back to school, I talked to Mother Elaine and told her what the doctor said to Catherine and to me. I asked her if she would be willing to to talk to Catherine about it when the time came. Mother Elaine said she would be more than glad to help. She also informed me, we don't know when that time will come, but we'll try to be ready. How old is Catherine now? I answered, she'll be 10 in about six weeks. Then Mother Elaine said, well, we shouldn't have to worry about this for a few years. The doctor said young girls are now having their first period as early as nine and 10 years old. I'd rather be safe than sorry. Time was moving fast, and before I knew it, Catherine was turning 10. 
I still hadn't found a job, but I was content with where we were. I knew things could be much worse. We were short on money and food, but I was trying my best not to complain. About a week later, I got a call from Deacon Carl. He said I was on his mind and he'd felt like he should call. I told him I'd been thinking about calling him. He asked what was go- he asked what was on my mind. I told him I wanted the church secretary's number so I could apply for food stamps. It didn't seem like I was going to get the job I interviewed for because I hadn't heard back from them. I explained I had to do something because Catherine because Catherine and I were becoming a strain on Uncle Philip. Catherine's Social Security survivor's benefits weren't enough. Deacon Carl suggested I call the company the next morning to follow up and see what was going on. That way, I would know whether or not the job was still available. Okay, I'll do that. He gave me the church secretary, Sister Jenkins' number. I swallowed my pride, called Sister Jenkins, and left her a message asking if if she could bring the forms for food stamps to church on Sunday. My pride was crushed at this point. I, I felt so ashamed. I broke down and became depressed. I had never felt so uncomfortable in my life. I I really didn't want anyone to know I was going to apply for food stamps, but I didn't have much of a choice. I still had not heard back from anybody about a job, and I knew food was getting too expensive for my uncle's budget. When Sunday came, I really didn't want to go to church. The weight of the depression, the embarrassment and shame over the situation Catherine and I were in was crashing down on me, but we got up and went. When we arrived, Deacon Carl was there waiting in the foyer with Sister Jenkins. Sister Jenkins was somewhat loud. I got the impression she wanted everyone to know my business. It was as if she needed some assurance or some praise for what she was doing. I wanted to tell her I'd changed my mind, even though I knew we needed the help. I just didn't like the idea of feeling like I owed her something. Just as I was about to speak, something in me said, You know the church is the hospital for sick souls, so look beyond her outer person. I knew that was right. However, it was hard. I had a feeling Sister Jenkins would make sure I wouldn't hear the end of what she did to help Catherine and me. I knew after I filled out the paperwork, all I had to do was walk into the Department of Human Services, but I still didn't want to. Subconsciously, I was still trying to protect my pride. After talking with Sister Jenkins, she suggested I fill the papers out after service. That way I could have food stamps by the end of the week. I asked her, how can it get done so fast? You qualify for emergency assistance. Those applications are processed in about three days. Besides, I work for them. Also, you'll be able to get medical insurance that includes dental. As I was listening, my pride started to subside. I became interested in what the benefits were. I started thinking, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. After services, we talked as I filled out the application. She told me she would call me Tuesday or Wednesday and let me know the status of the application. Tuesday came and I hadn't heard from Sister Jenkins, so I decided to call her. Just as I reached for the phone, the construction company I had applied to called. James, the project manager who interviewed me, asked if I was still interested in the job. Yes, I replied. I thought you had given the job to someone else. No, we had a few problems we had to solve on some other job sites. When could you be able when would you be able to come in for another interview? When would you like me to come in? I asked. He said Friday would be good. I said I'll be there. 
The call from James gave me hope, something I really needed. Amazingly, as soon as I hung up with James, Sister Jenkins called and told me Catherine and I had been approved for public aid. I was thankful, but I didn't know whether or not to accept the food stamps. It seemed like I was going to get the job, but I just didn't know for sure. I asked Sister Jenkins what she thought I should do. She suggested take the food stamps just in case I didn't get the job. She told me I could always call and discontinue them at any time. She said she would have food stamps and medical cards sent to me the next day. I was happy, but I still felt ashamed because of the stigma I associated with people on food stamps. I'd hoped we wouldn't be on public assistance very long. I felt embarrassed. I'd always thought I was above public assistance, but I wasn't. Was this God's way of changing my thinking about poor people? Was it his way of humbling me? At the time, I didn't think I was judgmental of the poor, but I learned that sometimes we don't realize how judgmental we are of other people until we're put in their place. Things seemed to be looking up. I I had the second interview scheduled and we were approved for public aid. I was nervous but excited about the interview. I felt like the job was already mine. Friday came. I dropped Catherine off at school and stopped for coffee before I went to the interview. I knew I needed to calm down, but I I felt like I'd be offered the job, so I was excessively excited. I knew it wasn't a sure thing, but I felt there was a 90% chance that job was mine. When I arrived at the company's office, James was there waiting for me. He asked me to join him and the owners in a meeting. It seemed a little strange I would be meeting the owners for this interview, but I had been told in the first interview that this company did things a little differently. While in the meeting, we talked about family, faith, friends, and commitment. I didn't understand why we were talking about these things, but they were in charge, so I listened. The president of the company asked me about Catherine and and if I thought being a single father would affect my performance. No, not at all. My child understands I need to work so I can take care of her. I couldn't have been in the office more than 10 minutes before he offered me the job. I was stunned, but I managed to ask when they wanted me to start. Mr. Western, one of the owners, asked if a week would be too soon. No, I replied, that would be just fine. James and I went to see my workspace and review the plans for the project. He said I would be assisting him build a management and subcontractor team for the project. I was elated on the inside, but on the outside, I tried to maintain my professional composure. My confidence and faith were growing, and I couldn't wait to tell Catherine and Uncle Philip. After the meeting was over, I went to the car and began to pray and scream. For some reason, I thought I was dreaming. The construction market was still unstable. The banks were still foreclosing on mortgages and people were still losing jobs. But here I was, leaving an interview with a job in hand. Everything that was going against me didn't seem to matter. I knew God was making a way for us just when it seemed like there was no way. I realized I should have asked how stable the project was. If the owners decided not to build it, would I still have a job? My elation faded a bit, and I thought, with the construction market still being unstable, I wasn't going to put a whole lot of faith in this job lasting. After the interview, I called Uncle Philip and told him I got the job. He was happy for Catherine and me. I felt like I could hear him saying to himself, now you can get your own place. Maybe I was being paranoid, and I knew I was getting on his nerves. I was still excited, and I felt like things were finally turning around. 
On my way back to the house, I stopped at the school to tell Catherine the good news. When I got there, I was told she'd been bullied again by the same girls from last year. It really bothered me because I thought that was over. The first thing to come to mind was I'm going to have to move her to another school. I quickly dismissed that thought. I knew somehow I had to make this work. Catherine was very sad when I saw her. She asked if we could just go home. I told her I couldn't take her home because running from a problem wasn't going to solve it. Finding out Catherine was being bullied again utterly destroyed the remaining joy I had. But I had to put my feelings aside. I had to make sure she was okay. After talking to her teacher and the principal, we decided it was time to have a parent meeting at the school with parents and the girls. I thought the real problem was something was going on with the girls and their families. I thought to myself, what are they going through at home that's so bad they feel like they have to pick on someone? Mrs. Ritchie arranged the meeting for that Friday. Before I started my new job, I needed to be sure this was not going to be an ongoing problem. The last thing I wanted was to be called at work and potentially have to leave because someone's child decided to misbehave. When Friday came, Catherine and I were a little nervous. She was nervous because she just wanted to have some friends, and I was nervous because I didn't want to have to find another school. It was a little tense when everyone arrived in the conference room. However, things began to settle down after Mrs. Ritchie spoke. She made it clear she was ready to expel any child who bullied anyone or caused any more problems. She told the girls and their parents behavior of that type was unacceptable. Then she had the girls talk about what their problems were with Catherine, and none of them had any good reasons for their actions. Catherine asked them, Why don't you like me? What did I ever do to you? When you put bullies in a room with people in authority, they crumble. When they tried to answer the questions, one of the little girls started to cry and blame the others. We talked with the children for about 45 minutes. Then Mrs. Ritchie had them apologize to Catherine and promise not to bully her or anyone else ever again. Of course, they all agreed, but I had my reservations. Children will do whatever they must to keep from getting punished. Chapter 13. After the meeting with Catherine's classmates, their parents and Mrs. Ritchie, things seemed to settle down. The job started and things were working well. Catherine was happy and so was I. It was time for Catherine and I to get our own apartment. I was a little timid about moving because the construction market was so unstable and if I lost my job, I wasn't sure what we would do. However, I felt I had to trust God, and I also knew Catherine and I were getting on Uncle Philip's nerves. He had good intentions, but we still needed our own space. I began looking for an apartment, something I hadn't done in nearly 30 years. I really didn't even know enough about the neighborhoods. All I knew was some were very violent and others were nice. Of course, the nicer neighborhoods were more expensive. The apartments were about the same size as they were in the cheaper, more dangerous areas. The real concern was Catherine's and my safety. It was all a little confusing. I I wasn't sure what what was the best thing to do. I needed help, but I had no clue where to find any. I asked my uncle, but he didn't know where I should look either. He did say he would find someone who could help me. He knew I didn't have much money and wasn't familiar with the city. After I picked Catherine up from school, Uncle Philip gave me a number for a Mrs. Farrar, a friend of his who sold real estate. I called her that night. She told me she would see what she could find. 
I gave her my parameters and we set up an appointment to meet the, that coming Saturday. When Saturday came, Catherine and I went to meet Mrs. Farrar at her office. When we got there, she had a few places picked out for us to look at. We drove past a few and they seemed okay. There wasn't much going on, but I knew the best time to look at rental places was at night. That would give me a true indication of what the neighborhoods were like. A few weeks later, I chose an apartment and Catherine and I moved. Moving wasn't hard for us. After all, we didn't have any furniture. All we had were clothes. Before we left, Uncle Philip offered to let me take a bed, dresser, table, and a couple of folding chairs. At first, I didn't want them. My pride was still getting in my way. I figured now that I had a job, I'd just buy everything we needed. After some serious thought, I changed my mind. I realized I had just started working and I knew the construction market was still unstable. The smart thing to do was to take the furniture my uncle had offered so I could save some money for Catherine and me for those just-in-case moments. Time moved really fast, and before I knew it, the school year was over, and Catherine was going into the fifth grade. She was still growing really fast, and she was getting really tall. I was happy I hadn't spent a bunch of money on furniture when we moved. Between Catherine's growth spurts and her playing more sports, she needed more clothes faster than, and, and that got expensive. During the summer, Catherine went to the summer school program. She decided she wanted to be part of the Girl Scouts again. I was working and things were going well. My confidence began to get stronger and I started to accept I wasn't leaving Chicago, at least for a while. Things were working so well, I decided to buy a used car. I needed one because I totally inconvenienced Uncle Philip using his. I asked Deacon Carl if he knew anybody who was selling one. He said he knew a man. Pee-wee was his name, and he was selling his car. Pee-wee, I said a bit incredulously. Deacon Carl told me he had known Pee-wee for many years. He said Pee-wee would work with me even though I didn't have a lot of money. Finding someone who would be willing to work with me was important because the truth was I didn't have any money between paying rent, utilities, and Catherine's tuition. Money was extremely short, but I needed a car to get to work and take Catherine to school. I went to see Pee-wee. Deacon Carl was right. Pee-wee was very helpful. He said he had a car he could sell me for $3,500, but he said I had to give him $1,500 as a down payment. I didn't know how I was going to come up with that kind of money, but I had to find a way. I asked my Uncle Philip if he could loan me some money. He said he would loan me $1,000, but I had to come up with the other $500 on my own. I decided I would make a late payment on Catherine's tuition because school wasn't starting for another six weeks, and I thought I'd have time to make it up later. I got the car the following week. I received a call from the school notifying me they hadn't received a payment for Catherine's tuition. I told them I was going to be late. They said that was fine, but I needed to know if the school doesn't have the payment before the school year began, Catherine would not be allowed to start. I called Mother Elaine and told her what the school said, and I didn't have the money to pay them yet because I had just gotten the car. She informed me the school was having very significant money problems and they were considering closing. I was disturbed by what, mo by what Mother Elaine said. I asked her if things were really that bad at the school, and she said yes, they were. I didn't know what to do or what it would mean for Catherine and me that fall. I figured if the administration was considering closing the school, it was only a matter of time before they eventually would. I began to worry. What if they decided they weren't going to stay open that year? Where would Catherine go to school that fall? 
Mother Elaine told me not to worry because she was sure they were going to open in September. I asked, how was she so sure? She simply said, they want and need the money. What do I do about Catherine's tuition? Just bring Catherine on the first day. There won't be a problem. She suggested I work out a payment plan and they would accept it. How do you know they will? I asked. Mother Elaine responded, I'm a trustee of the church and you have my vote. When school started, I spoke with the office about the money I owed. They accepted the plan, just as Mother Elaine said they would. Everything seemed to be working out. Then the first week of October came. I went to work, and I was told the company had lost the contract on the project I was supposed to be working on. They told me they were going to let me go at the end of the month. Just what I feared, losing the job. I didn't let it get me down, though. I I kind of expected it. I just asked them why all of a sudden the project was discontinued. I was told my project wasn't the only one that wasn't going to be built, and they were letting seven other project managers go as well. James explained the commercial banking market was taking a hit just as the residential market had. However, this hit was going to be a lot costlier. I suspected from the beginning something was happening in the commercial market. When the residential market crashed, I'd known it wouldn't be long before the commercial market crashed. Things were really getting worse. The construction industry was on the verge of total collapse. I spent the rest of that day looking for a job. I was on edge. I'd lost my job. Catherine's tuition was due along with every other bill, and the car I'd bought needed tires and maintenance. Then, just as I thought things were really, really bad, they got worse. That evening when I got to school, I had a cashier's check for Catherine's tuition. After I made the payment, the office gave me a letter that said they were officially closing the school at the end of the school year just what I needed, more stress. Not only had I lost my job, but I also had to figure out where to put Catherine in school next fall. The emotional roller coaster was getting the best of me. I was back in the same position I'd been in when we first moved to Chicago. I didn't have a job and Catherine didn't have a school. Once again, I had no idea what I was going to do. It seemed like ever since we'd moved to Chicago, the only thing I knew was stress and depression. They were constant in my life. I started to think there was no way out, and I'd made another bad decision, but I refused to give up. Catherine's hair needed done. I called Diane to make her an appointment, but I couldn't afford it. But I also couldn't afford to let Catherine's hair get out of hand. Besides, it wasn't Catherine's fault that the economy was crashing. I doubt she understood what was going on. I knew I was going to have to explain to Catherine that I'd just lost my job and that she would be going to a new school. However, I thought I would just wait a few days to tell her. She was happy and I didn't want to disturb that. Besides, I didn't know how to tell her. She had finally started to make some friends. It really bothered me that I was going to have to move Catherine again, and it was scary for me. She'd just gone through that bullying thing and had been moved halfway across the country from Maryland to Chicago. It was a lot of changes in just a short amount of time. I thought it wasn't healthy for her mentally or emotionally. I wanted to take Catherine to Diane anyway because I knew she might be able to help me with the school issue. She had a son and daughter at the school, so she was going to need to find a place for them also. 
When I got to Diane's shop, I asked her if she knew what was going on with the school. She told me she hadn't been told anything by the administration, but her sister-in-law who worked there told her the school was to close the school was close to five hundred thousand dollars in debt. I asked her, how could that have happened? She said the school had been losing money for years and they haven't been keeping up with the maintenance of the building. The boiler had recently been replaced and there and that was three hundred thousand dollars. The school didn't have any money, so the church had to pay for it. According to Diane, it had gotten to the point where the church just couldn't continue to pay the bills associated with the school. I asked her what she was going to do with her children when the school closed. She wasn't sure, but she was thinking about sending them to Longwood School. Longwood was a very high-rated public school. The problem for me was Longwood was too far away from where we were living. I asked her if she had any recommendations for schools near where we lived. She advised me about a school called Robert A. Brown, a selective enrollment school. I didn't know what a selective enrollment school was. Diane explained they were the best schools in the city and children had to test to get in. Do you know what the process is? I asked. No, she replied, but you should go by and ask how it works and then let me know. I will, I told her. I'm, I'm desperate. After Catherine's hair was finished, I took her to get something to eat. I was going to have to explain to her about the school closing, but before I could say anything, she asked me where she was going to go to school when hers closed. I had no clue she knew about the school closing, but I guess the students had been talking about it. She seemed sad about it at first, but for a 10-year-old, she was very mature about it too. I told her I didn't know where she was going to school yet, but I was starting to look. She smiled and continued to eat. She seemed to be unaffected. In fact, she appeared to be relieved. I thought she must have bad memories about being bullied at that school. Maybe she was glad she was getting away from her tormentors. When Catherine and I got home, I decided we needed to pray together. I'd been thinking for a while that we should start praying together again. This seemed like the perfect time to start. We were in a mess, and I didn't have anyone I could go to except God. Something I learned over the years is most people, even those who don't believe, call out to God when trouble comes. Catherine and I started to pray. I had little faith, but sometimes a little is all you need. As we prayed, Catherine asked if she could pray too. Of course you can. She never stops impressing me. With everything I was facing that day, Catherine still found a way to make me smile. Catherine's birthday was coming and she was turning 10 years old. Time was really flying by. I didn't know what I was going to do for her birthday, so I asked her what she wanted. She said, Daddy, I don't want anything. You just lost your job and we don't have much money. Tears started to roll down my face. She said to me, Stop crying, Daddy. We're going to be okay. I asked, How do you know? An angel told me, she said. I guess the angel heard our prayer. As time passed, I started collecting unemployment and continued to look for a new school. One day, Diane called me and suggested I look into Ellis Avenue Charter School. She had clients whose children were there, and the school was a level one school. I told her I'd look into it. 
It was January and time was running out. I didn't want to be without a school for Catherine, so I decided I was going to go and visit Ellis Avenue. Catherine had a doctor's appointment coming up, so I thought then would be a good time to go. This way, she would get to see the school and the office staff would get to meet her. After we left Dr. Abigail's office, we stopped by Ellis Avenue Charter School. It was an old but well-kept building. As we walked in, there were poster boards on the wall that had all the children's names and their grades. There were stars by each child's name. When we got to the office, I introduced us. We didn't have an appointment to visit, but they met with us anyway. Mrs. Joseph, the office manager, was very nice. I told her I needed to find somewhere to send Catherine to school because her private school was closing. I gave her Catherine's report card and her standardized test scores. Mrs. Joseph was impressed. She's in the 96th percentile, she said. What does that mean? I asked. That means Catherine is in the top 4 to 5% of 5th graders nationwide, she explained. After we talked, she told me she didn't have any openings at that time for fifth graders. Of course, I didn't want to hear that. If you can find a seat for her, I'll put her in school on Monday, I told Mrs. Joseph. I'm sorry, she said, but we just don't have the space. Thanks anyway, Mrs. Joseph, Catherine said. We started to walk out. When we got to the parking lot, Mrs. Joseph ran out the door behind us. Wait, she cried. For some reason, I can't let Catherine go. What do you mean? I asked. With her test scores and her beautiful personality, she has to come here. I'm going to make room for her, she said. What? I exclaimed excited, excitedly. Yes, she said with a smile. Bring her here Monday morning and we'll have a seat for her. But I don't have a uniform for her, I said, and I'm not getting paid until Friday. Come back upstairs with me. Mrs. Joseph said, I'll, I'll give you a uniform. That was the second time Catherine had made someone make a seat for her at a school. After our visit at Ellis, I went back to Genesis Christian and explained I would be taking Catherine out of the school as of Monday. I asked for a transfer package so I could give it to Ellis Avenue. The office clerk responded she could not give me the package. I asked her why. She said I needed to talk to the principal because she was the only one who could authorize that. I asked, where's Mrs. Ritchie? The clerk said, she's not in. You're going to need to make an appointment to see her. I was angry because they were closing, and now it seemed like they didn't want to let Catherine leave. I didn't understand. I instructed her to make the appointment. Later, when I met with Mrs. Ritchie, she asked me why I was moving Catherine in the middle of the year. I replied, the school is closing in June, and moving Catherine now would save me six months of tuition I couldn't afford. Also, moving Catherine now allowed her to start at the beginning of the semester. Mrs. Ritchie said she couldn't give me the package because when I signed the contract with the school, I'd signed for the entire school year. She informed me that I needed to pay for the whole year, then she would give me the package. After everything Catherine has been through at this school, you're going to sit here and tell me you're not going to help her? I said. At that moment, I felt like it was the perfect example of that old saying, if it's not one thing, it's another. I said, I'm taking her out anyway, and I'm sure that Ellis Avenue will get the information they need. Thank you for your time, and thank you for allowing Catherine to attend your school. I walked out. I was so frustrated. I felt like they were trying to hurt Catherine, but they weren't. 
It was their rules and they wanted their money. When Monday came, I was a little nervous about taking Catherine to Ellis Avenue. She and I didn't know anyone there, so we were walking by faith. I was concerned, but she wasn't. When we got to the office, I explained to Mrs. Joseph that Genesis Christian School would not give me the transfer package. I didn't need to worry about it, Mrs. Joseph said. She just needed me to sign a request for information. The Chicago Public Schools Central Office would get the information they needed. We left the office and went to meet her new teacher and classmates. It was really a different world from Genesis. When we walked into her new classroom, the teacher, Mrs. Alice, had the class stand up and greet me. It was very different, but I liked it. These children showed total respect for adults. After I spoke, Ms. Alice introduced Catherine. Two of the girls walked over to Catherine and gave her a hug. It was even more impressive. One of the girls said to the class, we have a new girl. Then everyone came and gave Catherine a hug or handshake. Then one of the little girls, Emily, said to me, you can leave now. We're going to take good care of her. She's our new friend. I left feeling totally relieved. I had no fear of her being bullied or being singled out by the teachers or others. I was thinking to myself, why couldn't the little girls at Genesis be kind like these children? The behavior of the girls at the Genesis really disturbed me because they were supposed to be Christians. I've always thought it's that kind of behavior that gives Christians a bad name. I wondered what their parents were teaching them or not teaching them. I didn't want to judge those girls or their parents, but a child's behavior doesn't lie. As I was walking down the hall with Mrs. Joseph, we bumped into the principal, Mr. Mason. Mrs. Joseph introduced us and we talked for a few minutes. He had a daughter in Catherine's class and he was on his way to meet Catherine. He said Mrs. Joseph told him our story and it touched him. He said he didn't think he could raise his daughter by himself. He asked Mrs. Joseph to make an appointment for me so he and I could talk. At the end of the day, when I went back to pick Catherine up, I met a number of parents. They were all very friendly and helpful. It made me feel so much better. I'd been worrying about this school. I really don't know why. Maybe it's because it wasn't a private school. Later that week, I met with Mr. Mason and his chief education officer, Miss Susan. She said she was so impressed when she met Catherine, she could tell Catherine was special. She uttered she didn't think her husband could do what I was doing. Any husband, man, or father could do what I was doing for his children. They just have to do it. It's all about what we're willing to sacrifice to see children successful. Over the next couple of months, we all became friends and our daughters became close. Ellis Avenue gave me some comfort about public schools. All of them aren't the same and all of them aren't bad. And that will do it for this reading of H.K. Fitzgerald's Raising Catherine. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I hope you enjoyed the reading. Pardon all the flubs, but you're probably kind of used to that here uh, at Carla Reads the Classics. I don't edit out my mistakes, but in any case, I do hope you were able to enjoy the reading. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.